All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Wellness Wednesday Inspiration. My name is Fernanda. I'm here with Dr. Linda and Mark Hennick will be joining us today. Today's podcast is super interesting, super relatable to me and I'm sure to many, many people out there. We're going to be talking about depression and is depression normal? It sounds like um, it's, it's becoming a, a little bit of a common topic nowadays. A lot of people are kind of struggling with depression, anxiety, and just not feeling happy or fulfilled in life. So today it's all about talking about depression. And Mark is going to be sharing a little bit about his own experience with it and how he kind of overcame the depression in his own life. So I'm super excited about it. I have my own share of experience with depression as well, which I've kind of shared in different uh, topics in, in the past, in different podcasts. So I'm excited about kind of hearing how Mark's experience was and, and just uh, how much he can relate to others and others relate to him. Uh, so super excited. Dr. Linda, how are you today? I'm doing great. Happy Wednesday. And I'm excited about our guests too. How are you? How, how are you really? <laughs> I am a little bit out of it still. I had yeah. an interesting experience this weekend or last weekend. You kind of knew oh, a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. We'll have so to chat about I'm, that. <laughs> yeah. I'm still kind of like out there in space, but here in form. Good, good, good. Well, I can't wait. We'll, we'll have to chat about that. We can always good. share about that at another podcast. But well, I'm excited to hear about. But I'm really excited about our guest today. So I really just, I want to get into this and introduce him. It was, you know, I love... Um, I love just researching, looking up a lot of information like oh, who we're having on our podcast, what are some questions, you know, how is this relevant because we want to bring information, you know, that's relevant, you know, it's, it's called Wellness Wednesday Inspiration for that reason to inspire people to become better versions of themselves, but also, you know, through, through health and wellness and Mark is just perfect for this. So a little bit about Mark Hennick. He's an internationally recognized mental health strategist and advocate, a speaker. He's an author of a book, the book called So-Called Normal. It's a memoir of family depression and resilience. And you know what's interesting with Mark? He His TED Talk got over 6 million views on it. That is amazing. So that ought to tell you right there that what we're going to talk about today about depression, mental health, you know, what used to be a stigma years ago is something now that we can talk about more in the open and not um, and not label it as something, oh, that's for weird people or, you know, it just always has had a bad stigma. And so I'm, I'm really excited about, um, you know, he's sharing his experience and um, just even recent things that he's gone through. But, you know, it's, it's really exciting to have him on because, you know, when, he goes out and as a speaker, I mean, he's talking to all kinds of people from young kids to older diversity. It doesn't matter color, uh, bank account, you know, none of that really matters because I think deep down inside, there's always some sort of commonality when it comes to um, depression and is it normal and, and so forth. But, you know, he's accomplished so much already too. You know, he's, he was one of the youngest presidents of Canadian Mental Health Association. So that ought to tell you like a lot right there. And also one of the youngest member of the board of directors for mental health commissions of, of Canada, um, and even a, a spokesperson for the Faces of Mental Illness campaign. 
So he is really one of those frontline people, just really working with people, connecting with them. And just like you and I, in our practices, there's a lot of doctors that have shows and, and write stuff, but they never see patients, you know, and we're, we're, we're in the mix of, of things. So, and, and Mark, the, the same thing, you know, he has a master's in child development, bachelor of arts um, with in, interdisciplinary honors that focuses on psychology and philosophy. And he also certified in trauma counseling, suicide intervention, mental health. I mean, there's so much that we can go on about that, but I, I think we should just bring him on because I'm really excited about this topic. And I know it's impacted every single person, not, I mean, every single person has been impacted by this. Mm -hmm. All right, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being with Hello. us today. I am super excited to be in your presence, Mark, and for you to share your story and share a little bit of your expertise with us, with our audience, and really just talking about a topic that it's become so common uh, nowadays, depression, and everybody just kind of uses the term, I feel like, just so casually now, you know, I'm super depressed or that's depressing, but what is really depression? Are we really depressed and what can we do about it? Because ultimately, I feel like the biggest mission in life is to be fulfilled, to be happy, to be joyous, to wake up mm -hmm. and really be thankful and grateful that we're here today. So how can we how can we do that? And I think you would be an amazing, amazing person to teach us a little bit of the way. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Fernanda and Dr. Linda. You know, depression is so many things and you can show me. I tell people mm -hmm. all the time where they're trying to find out, you know, how do you recognize a depressed person? Uh, and that's a fair enough question because you want to help. Right. But you can also show me 10 different people all with the exact same diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And they're going to show me 10 different ways to be depressed. So I think we need to uh, really appreciate and celebrate uh, people's individuality and how that extends both to their struggles uh, and to their joys and to the things that work for them, because ultimately, I think that's that discovery is what helped uh, my recovery is realizing that I needed to figure out what worked for me. And that didn't necessarily mean it was going to work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you experience depression? What was that? What was living with depression for you? How did you even figure out that that's that you, know, that you were experiencing depression? Kind of just a little bit about your story. Sure. You know, I mean, everything really professionally, I think, and it, for me started at the point that I thought it was the end. I thought mm -hmm. I couldn't possibly go on any further. And it was the second of two stories that I told in the TEDx talk that you mentioned, uh, in which I had climbed up over the railing of a bridge in my hometown, a small town on the east coast of Canada, uh, fully convinced that I needed to die. I, I used this term, this perceptual collapse or this cognitive rigidity that had set into me that didn't allow me to see anything outside of that moment. I was entirely hopeless and helpless. And what I think people didn't see uh, or, or maybe didn't appreciate when I had done the TED Talk that went on to be seen by millions of people uh, was the path, the journey that really had brought me to that place to begin with. Uh, and for me, that started, you know, many years earlier. I was first dis uh, discovered to be suicidal when I was only 12 years old. Uh, I was uh, drawing little pictures in the margins, little doodles in the margins of a social studies test uh, that I wasn't prepared for. And the reality was, though, that 
I think I'd I'd been struggling for a long time, even before that. My grades had started to fall. I had started to struggle in school because I was becoming more depressed. Uh, And I feel like nobody really recognized that as a sign at the time, Uh, partly because people didn't know what to look for, uh, but also because I think there was just this Uh, There was certainly an active stigma against talking about mental health, but even more problematically was this passive stigma that it just wasn't normal. We don't ask people about their feelings or their depression or their mental illness or, you know, heaven forbid, if they might be suicidal, because that's just not the way that we have conversations, right? It hadn't Mm -hmm. been normalized yet. Um, For me, I think the causes were multifaceted, as they are for many people. I was growing up in a broken home. My parents had split up. Uh, We had moved into a new home where I was surrounded uh, via my stepfather by a culture of toxic masculinity where it just wasn't okay to not be okay. That I was a a little boy, but I had to be a man. I had to suck it up and boys don't cry and all this stuff. And, you know, if if we've learned anything from the last 150 years or so of psychology, it's that you can push your emotions away as hard as you want, but that doesn't make them go away. They come out in other ways, uh, and particularly for boys and men uh, in in terms of aggressiveness against themselves very often. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's what I experienced from a from a young age, uh, from elementary school onward, was this uh, combination of social factors, uh, of mental factors, of psychological factors that didn't allow me to speak about how I was feeling. Uh, and then ultimately, I think what what didn't catch it early enough and help me early enough was a healthcare system that was just not designed uh, from the very beginning, I think, to help people, especially like me, with complex needs. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I used to think of myself as a kid who fell through the cracks, uh, but the more I started to work, especially as a clinician uh, with, w- with kids like me who are struggling, is that the system is the cracks. That is the system. Kids are falling through all the time uh, and we need to do better. So that's why I've dedicated my life ever since high school uh, to helping people to have these conversations and to making systemic change uh, that actually helps people to recover. Now, that's interesting that you say that because I have, you know, having three children, I mean, two are adult now. And uh, I remember in high school, when my son was in high school, and he was on the wrestling team, and then we got news that one of his teammates had, you know, had suicide himself. And it was, it was just shock. It's like, what? But, you know, everybody liked him and what would cause him to do that? And there's just so many questions is when something like that does occur. What do you think the commonality is that behind? Is it more like a person's perception of them thinking there's no way out. Hmm. I, I think that it it is in many ways. So you, you mentioned two, I think, really important points here. One is that people are often very surprised, you know, when the mm-hmm. the um, a football star or a cheerleader uh, of all people or a celebrity uh, mm-hmm. or somebody who's very popular and seems to have it all, that it turns out they were struggling uh, and that they die by suicide. So one of the most common mm-hmm. things I hear is that we didn't see this coming. When in fact, we know from the clinical research and otherwise that Uh, there's almost always signs uh, that somebody might be contemplating suicide. So again, this comes back to uh, uh, two important um, 
uh, barriers that we face. One is that we're not trained to look for the signs very often. And the other is that sometimes, especially parents and people who really are very close to people who die by suicide, they just block that out as a possibility. It's too painful to even think about, so they can't even process it. And that's why they miss it, I think. So there's a lot of reasons why we don't see it coming, um, but it's rarely because the person doesn't show us that it's coming. So there's where, there's where we need to do uh, some growth. Why do people get into that place? I think that it, it's certainly a, a combination of factors, but we know that mental illness is one of the highest uh, predictors of suicide, depression in particular, uh, and especially substance-related disorders uh, uh, as well are highly correlated with suicide. Mentally, I think that having been there myself a number of times, you get into a place where you feel like nothing will ever get better uh, mm -hmm. is the first part of it. The second part is that you feel like there's nothing you can do to make it better. So it's a loss of agency that makes you feel trapped like you're a prisoner. Uh, and it's it's this, this sense that uh, that the way that things currently are is untenable, uh, that you're not able to manage, uh, that you're not strong enough is the is the narrative that you think in your head. So, you know, I think that gives us then a clue as to how we can help people to help give them more agency uh, and to help show them that the life that they're currently living isn't necessarily going to be the life that they're always going to have. Uh, I think mm -hmm. if we can introduce that ambivalence uh that that hope and possibility that's can can be really what helps people to get out of that place you mentioned something so important and so um i think it actually touched me a little bit deeper because of the fact that i think i experienced it for myself and i've seen it also as a as a practitioner as a as a provider also even with some of my clients and that's the fact of denial denial of what's going on because of not wanting to get involved or not wanting to experience that pain or um, even even experience that reality. So we kind of just block it out or we say, oh, it's just a phase or it's just, you know, it's temporary or it's not going to apply to him or it's just, you know, whatever. And we just create a story around it. And that's just not with depression. It applies for many, many other things in life. But depression is a huge one because when we are in denial, when someone is depressed and when nothing's being done, that person, it's, I feel it's losing more and more and more hope of, you know, someone coming to the rescue or someone doing or someone caring or loving enough to, to do something for them. And that is so huge. Now, you also talk about the signs and uh, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, there is it can show up in many, many different ways and in many, many different um, bases or, you know, characteristics. But what would be the major signs that people are experiencing that we may or may not be in denial about? I look at three primary domains. I mean, people's thoughts, feelings, and their actions. And you're not going to be able to see the symptoms that they're experiencing themselves. You can't see a symptom. That's something that they experience, of course. But you can see uh, signs that perhaps uh, suggest uh, something might be going on. For example, if somebody is withdrawing socially, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. They might have uh, a lack of energy, for example. It's really difficult to get out of bed uh, and to motivate yourself to get on with your day uh, if you have depression. We know that it impacts you physiologically. There could also be uh, a fear. Uh, very very often people have uh, anxiety along with depression. Uh, the rate of comorbidity between those two uh, conditions is very, very high. Uh, so that's 
what, exactly what I experienced. I had depression, but I had social anxiety disorder as well. So even though I wanted to connect with other people, I was anxious to do so. So it was kind of a double, you know, one of my illnesses was keeping me stuck in the other illness. Uh, and we see this all the time as well. Um, you know, so certainly there's the physiological piece. People might be tired. They might be uh, eating either more or less, depending on how they've learned to cope uh, and their relationship is with their own coping. Um, we've, we see all kinds of uh, impacts of physiological stress. Uh, you know, it, stre being stressed and whatever that stressor might be, depression, of course, being a major stressor, uh, is exhausting for our body. It's physically difficult. So you're going to see people getting more colds and flus even. It can compromise their immune system. Uh, we certainly see more headaches and gastrointestinal stuff going on. Um, and this is why I said at the very beginning, you know, you can show me 10 different people all with the same diagnosis and they're going to manifest it in 10 different ways because mm -hmm. it really so much depends on uh, their background. But whatever their their specific symptomology is, you're looking for significant changes from their so-called normal. I mean, this is partly why I called the book that changes from their baseline. You know, something seems different than they usually are. And this is how we notice it in ourselves, too. Um, this is also why I think uh, sometimes people can uh, find it easier to deny that somebody else is changing because the change is so gradual. It's so slow. It allows us to habituate and get used to it and build up the denial over time versus somebody who goes through a, a dramatic change. And then suddenly it's a lot easier to see that they're different. Sometimes you don't realize that somebody has changed until you really take the time to talk to them and to, to hear them, to get to know them. Uh, and to listen with empathy to what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. How would you talk to someone that you suspect? As you said, I mean, it's really difficult to, I mean, you said, I mean, there's people like, oh, they, they seem to just like have it all. They have the perfect life and laughing and doing things with friends and aren't picking up any of this, yet suicide occurs. Um, how do you really you can you really talk to them it's like really like how are you really or sometimes just feeling i think feeling um i always say there's everyone has some sort of energy and the something's just off with the vibe do you find that that you become do, intuitive to that when yeah mm -hmm. i think i do and i can usually tell when there's something that that somebody isn't saying although i don't think that's a superpower i think a lot of people can do that if you have you know, a bit of emotional intelligence and you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I also think it's way more common than we're comfortable admitting when you have a gut feeling that something isn't right. Uh, and then you don't say anything either because yeah. you think it's going to offend that person or scare them. You think, uh, I don't want to ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves because what if they weren't and I give them the idea to do it? That's not a thing. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that right now, that you're not going to give somebody the idea to go and kill themselves as though they had never thought of it before. That's not how suicide works. This has been researched. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most uh, effective ways to prevent suicide is to ask directly, are you thinking about killing yourself? You don't have mm -hmm. to hedge around it. You're probably more nervous about asking than they are about telling. Actually, that's been my experience. Um, but you're not going to give them the idea. Uh, one of the major fears that people or another major fear, I should say, that people um, experience when they want to ask somebody if they're struggling in that way is what if they say yes, then what do I do? You know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a crisis mm -hmm. worker. 
that's not necessarily what that person needs right at that gateway. Uh, you can be a gatekeeper of sorts or a gate watcher at least to be able to open that door if they do say that they are indeed uh, a risk of harm to themselves. Uh, then you can be in their corner and help them to connect to services that can help them. You don't have to fix all their problems. Don't promise to keep it a secret. Uh, don't don't make any commitments that you can't actually fulfill. You're not their therapist. Don't try to cross that, that boundary. Uh, but you can offer to help get them connected uh, with the right professionals who can help them. Is there like a website, like a nationwide website that people can go to? Because when people are watching this video, they're going to come, it's from some small towns, some big cities. Is there like a national website that someone can go to, to like, you know, to, to find someone or would they go to a counselor or they go to a psychologist, a psychiatrist? Yeah. So there's actually many, a lot of people don't realize this. There's actually a lot of different routes to recovery and there's a lot of different doorways depending on what works for you. Now, if you're suicidal uh, or you know somebody who is, there are some very specific resources. The national, if you're located in the US anyway, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, is one of the main, the frontline ones that you'll hear. Uh, there's crisis lines in many different communities. Uh, certainly talking to your doctor, going to the emergency room. Uh, mm. There's mixed advice around calling 911 because particularly in the in the US that can go sideways if you're a person of color for example uh, or if you're a minority of any kind there could be some danger associated with that um, but you can do it in a more informed way if absolutely necessary I've found this both as a friend of people who have been suicidal uh, and as a clinician that generally you don't have to go that route anyway uh, that it's always better to encourage and to support people to receive voluntary help uh, than it is to ever try to to do something the involuntary way. You can't do recovery to people. You can't inject healing into them. That's just not the way these things work. Um, but it might be necessarily necessary to help somebody stabilize uh, for a short period of time. So look into crisis uh, lines in your area, local hospitals. It can be helpful if you know that somebody has a history of high-risk behavior or suicidality. Uh, if they don't currently have a crisis plan and you can google you know suicide crisis plan there's lots of templates out there uh, mm -hmm. to help somebody to develop something like that and what they'll do in there are list uh, in common versions of it anyway uh, list resources uh, people in their life that they know might be able to help them that could be doctors it could be teachers parents priests ministers uh, uh, it could be a, a wide range of people uh, who are uh, in a position to help or who are qualified to help and why it's helpful to list those out, especially when the person is well, is because when you enter into a crisis and things start to shut down, your memory works differently. It's a lot harder to bring that stuff to mind uh, when you're in the depth of a crisis. So you prepare for the hard times when you're doing relatively better. Uh, and that's where I think friends and family can really help uh, to coach people, to make sure they have those resources at hand uh, for when they need them. Mark, can you touch a little bit more on going back to your journey? You shared uh, a little bit about your story with depression when you were uh, younger, once you realized that you had it, and how how was your story of healing yourself? And you know, once you once you knew that you were uh, struggling with depression and and everything, how did you actually start healing yourself? What kind of things did you do? What kind of resources did you personally tap into and, and how, how has that evolution happened, like been basically mm. over the years? 
you know, I wish in the the acute phase, the acute years of my struggle, uh, that it had have ever been that intentional. And if I've learned anything, both in my personal recovery and again as a clinician, is that recovery is messy. Uh, you don't. I, in my case, I didn't even know that I was in recovery until many years down the road. So for me, I mean, I people first found out. It was a teacher actually who first found out that I was suicidal when I was twelve. Over the course of the next uh, 12, 13, 14, four years, uh, I was in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times uh, with increasingly dangerous suicide attempts, increasingly more intentional suicide attempts. Turns out killing yourself isn't something that you're just born knowing how to do, uh, that it's something that you build a cognitive pathway that you practice. Uh, crudely and you figure it out. And that's why it's such a tragedy when suicides occur, because there are intervention points along the way if the system was better constructed to help people. Uh, but that aside, uh, it, coming in and out of hospital, uh, trying cocktails of different medications, I didn't have the benefit of receiving a whole lot of psychotherapy when I was going through this uh, acute phase of my struggle because we didn't have a lot of psychotherapists available to us. I was in for uh, two um, two, two rounds of CBT, I guess. Uh, one was six weeks, one was six to eight weeks, I think. Uh, and those periods in my, in my struggle were actually helpful. They were relative um, uh, improvements while I was receiving that kind of support. But then when those supports went away, so too did my recovery. You know, when you pull away the scaffolding that is helping to support people before they're ready to do it on their own, uh, then nothing changes if nothing changes. You know, you go back to the same state that you were in before. So for me, the moment of change that I traced it back to anyway, uh, came in that suicide attempt that I talk about in my TED talk where I climbed up over the railing of that bridge. I'd been in and out of hospital so many times I came to be known as a frequent flyer of the mental health care system. Uh, and I felt like it was just completely hopeless that nobody, I had talked to so many doctors already and they couldn't help me. So maybe it meant that I was unhelpable. Maybe I was just one of the unlucky few who had a broken brain uh, and it would never get any better. This is that toxic mix of hopelessness and helplessness that gets people stuck in that place. Uh, so I had climbed up over that railing and I was ready to die. And if it wasn't for a complete stranger uh, who stopped and talked to me, uh, then I wouldn't be here today. He he stopped and he introduced himself. He talked to me. He I wasn't talking a whole lot back to him, but he left space. He left the silence and he didn't leave. Uh, and as he talked to me, I felt my my perception kind of loosen up a little bit or become a bit more expansive. And I became a bit more aware, less collapsed, uh, uh, more aware of my surroundings. Uh, and then I had noticed that the police had arrived and they had barricaded the bridge. Crowds had gathered to watch. I didn't hear any of these people arrive or originally because I was so dissociated in the moment. Um, and then there was a, another man on the sidelines who shouted out for me to jump and he called me a coward. And when I had that, that experience of these two complete strangers, one on the sidelines, one who literally was, you know, had my back, who was there talking to me, when the guy on the sidelines told me to jump and called me a coward, I let go of the railing and I started to fall. And that was when the stranger who I could only see was wearing a light brown jacket who was standing behind me. He grabbed me uh, and he pulled me back over the railing. I was sent back to hospital and, you know, I didn't suddenly receive the medication that changed everything or the therapy that changed everything for me. Um, but something changed, I think, inside me. And it took me more than a dozen years, 12, 13 years to realize very slowly that it was the image of these two strangers that night 
uh, who are watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them, but each made a very different choice. They each made a very different choice in how they could, how they, how they reacted uh, to what they saw in front of them. One guy chose to stand on the sidelines and to push me over uh, with his words and with his uncaring and and disempathy, and the other guy chose the opposite to have my back and to reach out and literally grab me and save my life. And I think that was when unconsciously I wanted, I made a decision to be like that stranger who saved my life. I wanted to be ha to have other people's backs and to reach out and to save other people. And the way that I started to do that uh, was with my story, was sharing my story openly. And, you know, over the decade, it, it became a, a positive feedback loop where I got better and better. I think every time uh, I shared my story and every time I relapsed, I got a little bit better. It got a little mm -hmm. bit less worse uh, each time. So, you know, many years later, I was able to finally find that stranger who saved my life and thank him uh, for everything that he had given me. That, that's so powerful what you said. Um, as you know, that just I think comes your perception with two different people looking at the situation differently of one more out of love and one more out of maybe anger. I don't know the, the fellow who, you know, who grabbed you, your jacket and was doing it more out of love. How um, do you still struggle with depression? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, because I think for a very long time, the answer was yes. Um, I, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't realize that I had uh, was in recovery, why I didn't realize that that bridge attempt was the last time I ever tried to kill myself. You'd think that'd be the type of thing that you would remember. But for me, it, it, I didn't even realize because I thought I was still struggling so badly for so many years. Uh, I would relapse at first twice a year and then once a year uh, and then once every two years. And now... I don't identify as having depression anymore, which is strange for me because I had had major depressive disorder for more of my life than I hadn't. <laughs> you know, I had it for, for more, more than half my life. And now I look at my life and think, I don't meet any of the clinical symptoms anymore. I, I don't meet the guidelines for having depression. So can you have an illness if you don't really meet the, the threshold anymore. Uh, and there are some people who will say, yes, you know, this is a chronic condition. You'll have it for the rest of your life. There is no cure. I actually don't subscribe to that view. Uh, if you need, if you don't meet any of the criteria anymore, then maybe you don't have it anymore. Uh, and maybe I'll get it again. Who knows? I've been lucky enough before. Uh, but as it stands right now, uh, I don't have depression. And I'm, uh, I live every day in gratitude for that fact uh, that I was able to get through 100% of the worst moments of my life. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting point you made because the way that, in my opinion at least, the way that we um, see ourselves, the way that we identify ourselves, it's how we project out into the world. So if you look at yourself in the mirror and you see someone who is ugly, you see someone who's dumb, you see someone who's overweight, you see someone who's depressed, you see someone who is incapable, et cetera, et cetera, that's how you project yourself into the world. And therefore, those are the results that you get back into your life. And in another, uh, the other way is if you see yourself as beautiful and powerful and smart and intelligent and happy and joyous, but subconsciously you really see yourself as that and you truly believe it, that that's how you project yourself out into the world. And that's what the universe gives you back as well. So when you send 
um, just a couple of minutes ago, I don't identify myself as a depressed person anymore. Even if anybody else could say, well, you're still you still meet the criteria or even if you don't meet the criteria, it doesn't go away. Those are their opinions and that's all that is to it. Right. And because well, of and other people's opinions doesn't mean that you that it applies for you. No, I think that's true. And actually, you know, I, I think that that's one of the enduring stigmas as well, uh, is that when we reduce these experiences down to simply the broken brain theory, uh, it actually embeds stigma further. It makes it harder for people to change when we tell them that they are not like you and I. Uh, mm -hmm. that they're just, and, you know, we tried that. We tried putting people away because they're different or they're mentally inferior or, or weaker or all these other, you know, things that we don't believe anymore. And it didn't work. Uh, when in reality, I think, if you actually look at the neuroscience, if you look at the psychology behind the vast majority of mental illnesses, now I will not paint too broad of a brush here. There are some that are more neurological than others. You know, if you look at schizophrenia, for example, or uh, bipolar disorder to an extent, uh, ADHD, there are experiences that are differently neurological than things mm -hmm. like depression or anxiety. That doesn't necessarily make them worse. You can have a, a pretty high functioning version of schizophrenia, for example, uh, and have a much higher uh, uh, state of your well-being than someone with severe depression. This isn't the this isn't the struggle Olympics either, right? It doesn't. We're not comparing diagnoses. But the point is that um, when we say mental illness in the singular, there are hundreds of different types of mental illnesses. First of all. But then gradations of each of those illnesses uh, are highly different, uh, highly variable uh, between individuals as well. So mm -hmm. I think that uh, it's one of my pet peeves when I hear people say mental illness in the singular, that person has mental illness. That means absolutely nothing to me. That's like saying this person who has a cold and this one who has cancer and this one has diabetes, they have physical illness. You're going to have to get a little more specific. And I think that we need to move to the next step of mental health uh, awareness where we become a little bit more sophisticated in our understanding of mental illness. It's not just that there's all these other people over here with the broken brains and we have to fix those poor people. That doesn't work. And it's not actually reflective of the science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do, you know, you, you mentioned um, as I was looking at some of your videos and reading about you, you know, I think a lot has to do with perspective. So you're different today. I mean, you're married, you have children, you have a wife now, compared to where you were when you were that teenager in high school who really just thought about it a lot. Now, since COVID hit last year, I mean, the, the crisis hotline, some of the counselors that I've spoken to that are colleagues of mine, they are just so busy right now. They're like, and that's like the busiest time ever that they've been with, you know, people calling, they're fearful. You had something, um, you know, you pr you're the sole provider for your family. You had something happen in your, you know, with you and, and your, um, with business and financial income and all that, which would be pretty stressful for a lot of people. I don't know if you want to share about that and how did you deal with that? Because that's like, whoa, a lot of people could, I think, relate, but their only way out would be, I don't know, something maybe not so positive. You know, it's funny, my, my relationship with struggle now and with change is much different than I think, than certainly it was when I was a teenager. Um, I, I'm of the firm belief that a lot of our suffering comes from our clinging, 
are clinging to trying to keep things together, to keep things the way things, the way we think things are supposed to be. Uh, it's a resistance, a rigidity that comes. So when COVID hit, you know, I had um, back in 2017, actually, I had decided to leave the nine to five uh, normal uh, career. Uh, and, and I got a book deal. So I was going to go off and write my book and build my business, which I'd been doing kind of on the side for many years anyway, uh, and successfully so. Um, but I finally took the plunge once I had the, got the book deal in hand uh, to go off and do it full time. Uh, that meant letting go of the security and the safety of having a so-called normal job mm -hmm. uh, and instead going off and being an entrepreneur, something that I had no experience or I thought I had no experience with before. So that's what I did and, and uh, was successfully building my business for several years until, of course, like so many other people, uh, in March of 2020, the pandemic hit and everything fell apart. <laughs> you know, when, when, you get, when, you become, when you get into consulting and uh, become an entrepreneur and, and any kind of private practice type thing, uh, you work contracts, you build out contracts. And I had many um, uh, built out for more than a year, both, you know, speaking and workshops and uh, a variety of consulting uh, contracts. All of them, however, uh, have clauses in them that let the, the uh, contractor cancel uh, or rebook, at least, uh, if there's a so-called act of God or a force majeure. Uh, there's no bigger unexpected kind of circumstance than a global pandemic. Yeah. So over the course of three days, all of my future work uh, canceled their contracts or had to rebook to an indefinite indefinite time. So suddenly I found myself having a year's worth of, of my finances planned out um, and uh, having among my best years ever uh, to suddenly having nothing. Everything that I had in my savings was all that I had. And I had a family uh, to support. That was one of the scarier experiences of my life, as you might imagine, not mm. knowing how I was going to pay my rent or feed my family. Um, but you know, something I think, I'm a firm believer that everything that has happened to you in your life so far is preparing you for this moment. I mean, there is no other option, right? You are the sum total of everything you've ever been. Uh, so I had learned to be resilient, to have this grit inside me that when faced with uh, seemingly hopeless circumstances, I just bear down uh, and get done what needs to, to be gotten done. Uh, so over the course of several days, I decided rather impulsively, I think, to open up about my experiences. I opened up on Twitter and it goes viral all over the place. And suddenly, you know, people are saying that they had experienced, they were experiencing the exact same thing. Um, and then I was invited to write a, a piece for CNBC, uh, which went, ended up becoming their number one trending article on across the CNBC network for for a whole day, I think it was at the time, because a whole country, a not just one country, almost all countries were dealing with what I was dealing with. So this is exactly what happened when I was suicidal and finally opened up about it. Uh, feeling so incredibly crushingly lonely, I didn't see that so many other people were doing the same thing. That it's like there's this whole community of people who are feeling alone together and they don't realize it because they're not talking about it to each other. So when I did that, I suddenly realized that there were so many people who were going through just what I was uh, and opening up was really what gave me the strength then to pivot my business, to flex, to, to find other options and figure it out. Uh, and surely enough, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was able to figure out partly through like so many times in my life, partly through hard work, uh, and being able to think of new ways to do business, 
but also thankfully uh, through the intervention of a stranger. A complete stranger offered us money to help us get through uh, a couple of months to get back on our feet to cover our basic living expenses for us. Uh, and I wasn't one to take that opportunity lightly. Uh, so I entirely turned my, my business around and it actually ended up being one of the most successful years that we've ever had. Uh, and it was thanks to that moment of crisis and the generosity uh, of that stranger. Uh, so I think that there's a lesson there for all of us, that you are more resilient than you think you are, that we doubt ourselves, but when, when it really comes down to it, uh, trust your instincts, uh, work hard, and, and reach out, open up, and you'd be surprised what can happen. Right, right. and it's also, I, I think, important to realize that when we are in a place where we feel like we're hitting rock bottom, whether financially, in a relationship, emotionally, physically, whatever aspect, really the, the only way at that point is up, right? There is, no, there is no going down anymore, right? So you can learn everything, you can take everything that you learned, you can take everything that you, that you have at that moment and just build yourself up and, and the resilience, right? You are resilient. But when you are at those, at those moments, a lot of people kind of tend to, you know, kind of start getting into that mental state of why me? Why does it have to be me? Why did it happen to me? But just understanding that it's, in a sense, the universe kind of sending you a signal. Hey, it's time to pivot. Hey, it's time to get out of the relationship. It's time to shift gears and, and do things in a different way. It's, it's kind of like, what I, what I see it, like visualize it, like the universe kind of just slapping you and telling you get up and, and get moving in a different way. It's time and to take is, action in a different way. This is just it. You know, when we're so um, rigidly clinging again to that structure of the life that we thought we'd have or how we thought things were supposed to go, that's what causes the suffering. You know, now when I encounter struggle, it's not that I don't have difficulty with it. Of course I have difficulty, but it's like, okay, I was raised Irish Catholic. Life is hard. That's what you learn from a very young age. Life is hard. What are you going to do? And so that's kind of, that's kind of how I approach almost every struggle. It's like, well, that sucked. I don't know why that happened. What are we going to do now? Right. right. You have to validate the struggle for sure. You can't just ignore that the tragedy or the crisis happened, validate it but then you got to move on too. It's like, well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to use this? Uh, and that's, you know, in my writing, the writer Anne Lamont has famously said uh, that you own everything that happened to you. You know, and David Sedaris, as the writer, has said something very similar, right? That everything that happens to you is material. It's creative juice to do something with. So why not use it? And, you know, that's, that's what I've done. And I think that's been a primary way that I've built my career has been using that rawness, that 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 stuff of life, and doing something good with it instead of just letting it sit on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And you know what I see with you, Mark? I see flexibility. It's like the tree and the storm. You know, when the storm hits, the tree—it's either it's going to bend <laughs> and you know weather the storm, or it's just not going to bend and it's going to be ripped out. And I think I would bend and get a little bit beat up and being completely ripped out. So I see you more of that person that, like you said, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to get through this somehow. And just being a person of flexibility and, and perspective has really, I think, um, allowed you to share your story and something that maybe 
um, as often people would think of, oh, that was something that happened bad in my life. Actually, it worked for good in your life because you are impacting literally millions of people with what's something that could have been so horrific, yet something that that came out so beautifully that how many people's lives have you saved? Who knows? Not just your own, but many more. So I just wanted to acknowledge you and thank you for sharing with you know our audience. And of course, so many people are going to be seeing this, um, you know, this conversation that we're having. And you know, we really appreciate it. And just thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I, that really does mean a lot because at the end of the day, you know, it's not like I set out with some grand plan of how to mm -hmm. change mental health for for people or the world. I'm just doing the only thing that I know how to do. And and. Hopefully it helps some people along the way, but I do this because this is just what I do. And, and maybe someday I'll do something different. I can't imagine because this is all I know how to do is talk about mental health. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful place to get to in your life. And I hope everybody has this opportunity to be able to build their passion, to be able to create who they are and not just stand back and wait to find out who they are. You make yourself, uh, you get to decide. You are the author and the editor of your whole life. Yes. Mark, as we come to the end of the podcast, I want to ask you for maybe two or three takeaways that you can give to the audience that may be feeling like they're falling apart, there is no way out, that they're struggling with the way that they're feeling, uh, they're not able to maybe see the way out at the moment. What would you tell those people? Sometimes, um, and this isn't going to sound very inspiring, but I'm going somewhere with it. Sometimes life just sucks. <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard. Uh, and I say that because there's nothing worse than that toxic positivity, right? Than that silver lining, everything telling you, oh, everything will get better. Right. But that's not how it feels right now. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's just really hard and that's okay. It's allowed to be hard. Don't set up these expectations for your life that it's good vibes only, everything's going to be great, and I'm going to be awesome. No, sometimes you just got to grind through it. And I wish I, somebody had taught that to me when my life, at the moments when my life was the hardest and I didn't know that. So th it's going to be hard sometimes. That's okay. That's actually what builds resilience. You don't build resilience by just laying down and taking it. You, you, you build resilience by going through uh, the, the struggle. So that's the first thing is that things are going to be hard, but you're stronger than you think. The other thing that I would suggest to you is not to believe everything that you think and feel, that your thoughts and feelings are data points. Sometimes, have, I don't know if you've ever, if anybody's ever told you this before, but sometimes you're wrong and that's okay to be <laughs> wrong. And it's great to be wrong. You know, when I went away to college, uh, I went to a liberal arts school. And the idea behind li the liberal arts is that you challenge everything, that you question everything, you become a skeptic. That's not to say that you don't trust your intuition and all that stuff, but sometimes you can be misguided. So take your thoughts and feelings as data points. Take it as information along the way, uh, but don't take yourself too seriously. I think you need to recognize that uh, maybe you don't have all the information in any given situation. If you think that something is helpless and hopeless, you might in fact be wrong. And that can help you to open up uh, to other possibilities and other options that are out there for you. Um, so, so please practice that. Practice being wrong more. And I, I promise you, it will expand your mind uh, and it will open you up to a whole world that maybe you didn't even realize was there. 
I love that. Life sucks sometimes. I was just writing notes on this. I'm like, I think oh, that's, that's going to be in my own, that's going to be on my tombstone or my obituary. Life sucks sometimes. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's part of the reality, right? And yeah. and it's going to be hard. But you know what? I found this so many times. What's better than going through something hard with other people that know that it's hard? Mm-hmm. Then you have yeah. a team. Then you have a tribe. Yeah. That's awesome. Where can people find you? Uh, I'm on most social media platforms. I I haven't been going on Twitter as much lately just because it isn't my thing lately. But I'm on most social platforms at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. My website is markhennick.com. And the book is so-called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience that's available on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, Indigo in Canada, most other major uh, and minor bookstores worldwide. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It was such an amazing experience to listen to your story and really learn learn from you. And I love the two takeaway points. Absolutely love those takeaway points. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just very grateful that you're here. Yeah. Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Yes, we really just, I was like taking notes here. I'm like, okay, I got to make sure I get this down, you know, because we all experience it and and I know I have as well. So um, thank you so much once again, and we will see everyone next week. Bye for now. Bye.